Here is a key verse for us this lunchtime. It is 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We're in this famous passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this week and next week. And I must say that it's something of a relief. Our topics are sounding foolish and looking weak. And for once, I feel I've got something meaningful to say on the subject. I've got a lot of experience of both of those. I wanted to bring us to this passage, not just because it's a favourite of mine, although it is, but because it is foundational for what we believe and practice in the Christian faith. To my mind, there are few passages in the Bible which so succinctly state what the Christian gospel is all about and what it is like to be a Christian. And yet, for many of us, perhaps over time, we can lose sight of what is central and essential to the Christian faith. Or maybe for some watching here, you're searching for answers from God, but you don't know where to start. Can I suggest it could be right here? It might help to think of it a little bit like this. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I went for a socially distanced walk with a friend in Richmond Park. It is rutting season, and I wanted to get some nice photos of the deer. But in the park, at one point, we saw this great view of the city of London in the far distance, with all the skyscrapers there, famous landmarks. So we followed the nearest path to try to find a lookout point where we could take in that landscape. Well, as we walked a little closer, we dropped a little downhill, and after a few minutes, found ourselves following a path towards a row of trees. And on the other side of those trees, we saw, well, nothing much. (laughs) Along the way, we'd lost our bearings and we'd fallen out of sight of the landmarks on the horizon. So out came the phones, up came Google Maps. We found that we were pointing almost 180 degrees in the wrong direction. We needed to get back to higher ground and to reorient ourselves on the big landmark and to set our direction according to that. Well, I wonder if some of us have done something similar with the Christian faith. We've assumed we've known where we're going. We've just followed the nearest path and we've taken our eyes off the big landmark on the horizon. We've lost sight of it. If that is you, then you're in good company because we're there together. Our passage here in 1 Corinthians 1 is like the map that reveals which direction we ought to be looking in. It's, It's like the high ground that gives us a clear sight line to the big landmark on the horizon. Here, the Apostle Paul wants to spin us around and to lift our eyes and to fix them firmly on the cross of Christ, which is the true north of the Christian faith and which determines the direction and the destination of each one of our lives. Let me read that key verse once again. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here's the Apostle Paul writing to the church in the ancient city of Corinth. It's always a cliche to say that these cities were strategic, multicultural hubs like modern-day London, but Corinth really was a city just like that. It it sat on the join between the northern part and the southern part of Greece. It was a kind of a bottleneck for anyone passing between the two. 
Every place that trade funnels through generates wealth and ideas, and Corinth had both in abundance. And perhaps that's why they were a fairly confident people, self-sufficient, self-satisfied even. When Paul first went there to preach the gospel, he was kicked out of the synagogue and planted a church in the room next door. At one point, he faced such discouragement and opposition, he'd thought about leaving, but the Lord had said to him, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, and a church grew, but it remained a challenging place to live as a Christian, with many competing ideas coming in from the culture around them. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 18. So here in his first letter to them, Paul writes to remind them of the basics of the faith. He wants to give them confidence in the gospel when it seems comparatively weak and foolish. He says something very radical here in this passage. He speaks about the Christian faith as the message of the cross. He says it sounds foolish. And by the message of the cross, he isn't just talking about Christian teaching as if that can sometimes sound a bit silly. No, he means the message itself, the good news about Jesus, is foolishness to the world's ears. It's foolishness because it's focused on the cross, a symbol of weakness and a means of humiliating execution. We've had 2,000 years to get used to the idea of the cross as a symbol of hope, but to ancient people, It was a symbol of shame and the ultimate dishonor. It was rarely spoken of, seldom written about. Someone who's written quite powerfully on the shame of crucifixion is the theologian Fleming Rutledge. She paints a picture of crucifixion in all its horror, and she remarks on how astounding it is that this might become the focal point of any faith, let alone the world's largest. She writes this, The world's religions have certain traits in common, but until the gospel of Jesus Christ burst upon the Mediterranean world, no one in the history of human imagination had conceived of such a thing as the worship of a crucified man. Yet that is precisely what stands at the heart of the Christian gospel. The Apostle Paul is adamant that it is by the cross that people are saved, verse 18. It is through the preaching of the cross that God saves those who believe, verse 21. So let me read, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. God's plan through all the ages was that the wisdom of mankind would be turned upside down. What looks like weakness will be shown to be powerful. What looks foolish will be shown to be wise. Here is an all-powerful God who chose to create the heavens and the earth and to make humankind and to provide for them and to walk with them. And when they rebelled against him in their sin, he chose to seek them and to save them. He chose to restore and remake what was lost. He chose to step into the very world he had created, to become a man, and then to suffer and to die in the place of his rebellious creations. At every step on that journey, God 
condescends. He comes down. He acts in humility and in service. He suffers the ultimate humiliation and he dies what was reserved as a slave's death. He did that because it is what we deserved. But in his goodness and in his kindness, he made himself less to step into our place and so to suffer what we deserved. So we need not suffer it for ourselves. If you've understood anything of that gospel message, you'll recognize how it stands against the wisdom of the world. It sounds foolish because in worldly terms, it is foolish. Top of my lockdown reading list has been Tom Holland's book, Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. Tom Holland is a popular historian. He's not writing from a personal Christian faith, but his thesis is that Christianity uniquely has shaped Western thinking and culture. It's interesting to hear his insight as an ancient historian reflecting on how the message of the cross would have been received in its day. He writes first of the pagan attitudes of the ancient Greco-Roman world. For these pagan powers, the boundaries between gods and men were fluid. But if one thing was certain, it was that only the strongest and most successful leaders in human terms would be considered worthy of worship as divine. Holland puts it this way, Divinity, then, was for the very greatest of the great, for victors and heroes and kings, that a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, grotesque. And then he goes on to contrast that pagan view with the Jewish one. He writes, The ultimate offensiveness, though, was to one particular people, Jesus' own. The Jews, unlike their rulers, did not believe that a man might become a god. They believed that there was only one almighty, eternal deity. That such a god of all gods might have had a son, and that this son, suffering the fate of a slave, might have been tortured to death on a cross, were claims as stupefying as they were to most Jews repellent. No more shocking a reversal of their most devoutly held assumptions could possibly have been imagined. Not merely blasphemy, it was madness. In other words, in the ancient world, it was a stumbling block to Jews. Verse 23, it was foolishness to Gentiles. However people had formed their views of God and what God was like and what God might do, they found their views confounded when he took on human flesh in his son and died by human hands on the cross. There really is nothing quite like this message of the cross. It really is strange. So it's no wonder that the ancients looked elsewhere. We're told in verse 22 that Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. And it's worth asking ourselves today whether we are looking elsewhere in those same ways. There are many who want to see signs. They say things like, I would believe in God if only he showed himself. They feel that a message of good news alone is not enough to prove persuasive for them. They want to see some dramatic, some physical, some incontrovertible sign today. I was speaking with a friend a couple of weeks ago who said something like this. If he could see something happen beyond the laws of nature, 
then he believed that there was a God who stands above nature. If he prayed and it was instantly answered in a miraculous way, he would believe that there is a God who is listening and active. Now, I believe that God can and does work in those ways from time to time. I'd never put a limit on his action. But as far as God is concerned, there is no greater sign, no greater dramatic intervention of God himself in human history than the coming of Christ and his crucifixion. For those who search for a sign, this is the landmark they ought to look to above all. And there are others who search for wisdom. Now again, there's a right kind of yearning and looking for answers to the big questions in life. But the question is, what kind of wisdom are people looking for? I'd suggest that the most common source of wisdom for many people today is the wisdom they seek inside themselves. They want to discover themselves, to figure out what feels best for themselves, and then to live according to the script that they've written for themselves. Maybe you've been on that journey. Maybe you are on that journey. Can I encourage you not to get stuck on that journey? Not to keep searching deeper and deeper inside yourself and following every new fad and philosophy as you try to figure out what life is all about. Can I encourage you instead to consider a wisdom that is outside yourself? In fact, to consider a wisdom that turns human wisdom upside down. A wisdom that, instead of finding meaning inside ourselves, gives us meaning and so sets us free from the striving and the struggle of life. The message of the cross is that we cannot reach up to God from inside ourselves with our own wisdom or power, but that God has stooped down to us in his upside-down wisdom. That's why Paul can write in verse 19, quoting from Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, it's not that the Christian faith is anti-intellectual. It's not that you're meant to open the Bible and close off your brain. Rather, it is to recognize wisdom for what it really looks like and where it can really be found. It won't look like us with our reaching up and striving. It will look like God with his reaching down and stooping. And if we want to know where to look in order to see it most clearly and in order to have our eyes fixed on it, well, Paul says, look at the cross of Christ. Verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Well, as I close now, just one final word on sounding foolish. Throughout the ages, these events of the Son of God giving himself up to die for the sake of people like you and me, it has sounded foolish in every generation. In Jesus' day, people mocked and sneered at him, even as he died. Yet even in his humiliation, precisely because of his humiliation, God's power and wisdom were made known. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche understood this paradox that stands at the heart of the gospel. He saw it as weakness 
and foolishness. In his book, Ecce Homo, he described the message of the cross as bait, as something seemingly attractive, but a trick. He wrote this, And could spiritual subtlety imagine any more dangerous bait than this? Anything to equal the enticing, intoxicating, overwhelming and undermining power of that symbol of the Holy Cross, that ghastly paradox of a God on a cross, that mystery of an unimaginable ultimate cruelty of the self-crucifixion of God for the salvation of man. It looked to Nietzsche like it has to many thousands of others through history as foolishness and weakness in the eyes of the world. And yet, and yet, for a countless multitude in the years past and in the present, the message of the cross has been life and salvation. A great many of us have found this to be true, that verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So let me close by giving voice to one such saint of old. John Stott, a former rector here, wrote this, which I think says it so well. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dried and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. Well, let me pray that that might be the God for us too. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you haven't left us to human wisdom, but that in your wisdom, you have shown human wisdom to be foolishness and your upside down wisdom to be true. So we pray, help us to fix our eyes on the cross of Christ and to keep that central in our life and in our thinking that we may say, along with John Stott and all those others, that is the God for me. Help us to do that, we pray, in his name. Amen.